Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, the European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre, and today I'm very happy to have on the podcast Francesco Grillo. Francesco has a PhD in political economy at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and he's also a prolific author, and I recommend you check out the book Democracy and Growth in the 21st Century. The reason to have Francesco on the pod today is to go over a policy paper we wrote with Raffaella Nanetti, Professor Emerita at the University of Illinois in Chicago, about flexible transnational electoral constituencies, a proposal to Europeanize EU elections. This is a particularly important topic and something that was discussed in the Conference on the Future of Europe, and Francesco will give us some of his suggestions to make this a reality. So with no further ado, I bring you Francesco Grillo. here with Francesco Grillo. Francesco, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Good morning, Catherine. It's very good to have you here, and we're going to talk about a very important topic, which is uh, transnational electoral constituencies. This is a paper that you wrote so elegantly with your colleague, Raffaella Nanetti, and it's on the European Liberal Forum website, and I'll link it to it on the show notes. But before we go into that conversation, tell us a little bit about yourself. What was the path that you took so that now we're talking here on the podcast? I am in between uh, uh, management and policies. This is also because I, I did an MBA in, uh, in Boston, then I got back this year at the London School of Economics, at the European uh, Institute of London School of Economics. Uh, uh, I've been in, uh, in, in Oxford, uh, the St. Catherine College, uh, the European Studies Center there. And now at the European uh, uh, University Institute in, in theater. Uh, I'm director of Vision, a think tank which is mostly dedicated uh, to how technologies uh, are uh, changing uh, uh, economic systems, political systems, special focus on, uh, on Europe. And we had a big conference on the future of Europe uh, together with all uh, foundation think tanks of uh, the big five European uh, political parties, uh, including uh, uh, European Liberal Forum, Social Democrats, uh, Popular, etc. Well, I'll have you on the podcast again just to talk about that. But before we go into then the, the topic of conversation, I'm really interested. So you're coming from the economics area, but then you started spread a little bit all around, you know, protecting democracy, uh, giving a vote to people, making Europe a better union. So all these interests are floating around. Do they come to you or do you seek them out? No, I think that this is uh, out of my hour because it's, uh, I'm working on that on quite many friends, including friends at the European Liberal Forum and uh, my and the co-author of, uh, of uh, the paper that we are talking about today. And uh, no, it's a, it's a, my um, personal intuition, which uh, then is uh, also uh, I, I found that it's uh, it's it also find the the com comfort, the numerical evidence. Mm -hmm. I mean, my uh, personal idea is that uh, um, we are at a stage of our uh, history where, as far as uh, liberal democracies are concerned. Either we, uh, quote-unquote, increase uh, democracy and we uh, articulate in a much richer way uh, the uh, instruments to which people participate to democracy, or we lose out. We lose out uh, to 
uh, autocracy, no? to less democratic regime. In countries like, uh, like, uh, like China, that I studied quite a lot, have got the advantage of uh, being able to move uh, much faster. So mm -hmm. they have uh, a, a decision-making procedures uh, which are uh, sort of uh, more efficient, you know, or at least quicker, uh, normal. No? We should have the advantage of having much more information when we take decisions because we are democracies. However, the instrument to which democracies operate, uh, our democracy operates, uh, need to be uh, radically reshuffled uh, in an era, in an era where, uh, where, uh, where uh, information itself uh, has been uh, massively uh, uh, redistributed uh, by the internet. You do mention on the paper that you wrote with Raffaele Nanetti on page three that EU electoral law is an important cause for citizen dissatisfaction. And it just connects to what you're just saying, the need to increase democracy. Tell us then why the EU electoral law is causing this disappointment in citizens. Well, first of all, let me elaborate on uh, the uh, quote-unquote dissatisfaction of uh, European citizen. Is, uh, the European, I'm referring to the election of the European Parliament. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the election of uh, the, the percentage of people bothering to go to vote, uh, the turnout uh, went constantly down since 1979, no? since the very first election of the European Parliament. At that time, 61% uh, uh, of European citizens voted for the European Parliament. At, uh, the semi-last election, uh, we went uh, uh, at around 43%. Uh, the very last election, uh, the uh, term, turnout uh, uh, inverted this trend. But uh, in, the, in the very last election, there was also a boom of uh, 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 European parties which do not even uh, find that useful to have uh, a European parliament. So mm -hmm. there, is, uh, there are very very big signs of uh, um, disaffection uh, towards uh, not necessarily the European Union, but that kind of institution, not the European Parliament. The electoral law is certainly not just uh, a cause for uh, this disaffection, but also a sort of uh, acknowledgement of the limits of that kind of participation. Mm -hmm. We have uh, uh, votes for the European Parliament taking place in different days, which would be absolutely uh, inconceivable into a national uh, uh, political election to, to then have, uh, you know, official results of how other uh, citizens, uh, your fellow citizens in other countries uh, voted before you go to the, to the polls. And uh, the very uh, way that uh, the... Um, the, uh, the, the procedure of uh, allocation of European seats uh, to different countries uh, function is such that uh, uh, the very notion of uh, democracy you know, is, uh, is not uh, fully represented. So that's why we came out with, uh, with a proposal for uh, you know, sort of radical uh, reshuffling of the electoral law. And you do propose four steps for changing this EU electoral law. Uh, let's enumerate them. I, I can do it for you if you want to. And then I would like you to please go into them a little more. And those steps are first, the establishment of a EU transnational constituency. 
Step two, distribution of the European Parliament seats between local slash national and EU-wide electoral constituencies. Step three, allocation of EU transnational constituency seats among different political parties. And then step four, it's allocation of seats to individual candidates. And this last one, I'm particularly interested in this one. So please go a little, what was the rationale behind this four point? The, the rationale and the problem to be solved is quite, uh, quite simple. Uh, right now, the election of the European Parliament uh, uh, is uh, the sum of uh, uh, 27 uh, uh, national uh, national uh, competition. Huh? Mm -hmm. um, so there is uh, um, basically the, the actually actually uh, there are there are some some member states where in fact uh, the, the election is on a regional basis. You know? So it's very much uh, within uh, within each country and sometimes within each region. So the entire um, argument uh, semantic competition is normally about uh, nationalism. No, it's about uh, how um, the single country is failing vis-a-vis uh, the European integration. So, the, the European Union uh, is uh, advantageous or uh, disadvantageous for that specific country. So, I mean, the idea here is about creating uh, the what we uh, we call a transnational uh, list. Uh, so, uh, to give uh, the democratic possibility to French uh, people to even elect uh, uh, an Italian uh, person, which uh, uh, seems uh, very weird today, mm -hmm. and, uh, and therefore uh, to uh, gradually transform this election into, uh, into a, an opportunity for uh, European citizens to really talk about Europe, no? and mm -hmm. not to talk about the 27 national policies vis-a-vis uh, -vis Europe. The uh, core of our proposal, talking about democracy, is about asking uh, citizens, giving citizens to choose whether they want to uh, uh, continue to be part of uh, national slash regional constituencies, which mm -hmm. is uh, perfectly uh, legitimate, or if they want to be uh, part of a transnational Europe-wide, EU-wide constituency. Okay, mm -hmm. so this is uh, the, the, the very idea. There is uh, a, a, a also talking about the technologies, which were, which we mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation. We we, we do think that electronic voting makes uh, this arrangement much easier, both at the time of choosing what kind of constituency you want to be part of, the transnational or the national, mm -hmm. and electronic voting again would be also very useful uh, at the time when you actually express your vote. You know? so it's, uh, um, the, then uh, our proposal envisage a number of mechanisms uh, through which smaller member states uh, do still have uh, uh, an important uh, representation uh, in the European Parliament. However, again, the core, uh, Ricardo, without going into the uh, details of the proposal we, that we can leave uh, to, to our 
print to, uh, for the reading of uh, the article, uh, is about giving uh, the European citizen the possibility to choose. Mm -hmm. Whether they want to be gradually, you know, citizen of the European Union, be citizen of their countries, uh, or which is uh, hopefully the choice that most of them will do, to uh, be part of both kind of citizenship, you know. Uh, whereas, uh, in fact, uh, for the European Parliament, uh, we would very much uh, encourage uh, MEPs uh, to think in European uh, ways and not as uh, representatives of uh, their uh, countries, uh, which uh, will then end up into endless negotiation. And I'm going to ask you to elaborate a little more on that. Where are we on that particular proposal? But before that, and I have to ask you this, and you, you know the American system as well as I do, the use of machines for electric voting and machines to tabulate votes, there are some skepticism and even some hysteria regarding that. So in your opinion, then, how can, how confident are you that we can in, in, include that system in new election law and then you feel comfortable that people will trust the system and we won't have, you know, all kinds of problems like we're seeing across the Atlantic? talk about the technologies, we always want to compare uh, security, efficiency uh, of technologies with the, the old ways not to do things. You know? so, uh, and as a matter of fact, um, what you are talking about uh, uh, is something which, uh, which also very much uh, has been mentioned uh, with more physical, traditional uh, uh, means uh, to to vote, you know, with uh, with the ballot paper, no. Mm. Uh, so it's an, uh, as far as uh, electronic voting, uh, I uh, would say that we need uh, to uh, to to adapt to something which is already uh, changing in a very big way uh, our uh, our lives. Uh, there is a, a a country which, by the way, is a member state of the European Union, Estonia. Mm -hmm. which uh, has mm -hmm. adopted uh, electronic uh, voting. And by the way, has adopted electronic voting uh, uh, going through a number of experimentation and evaluation. When we adopt new technologies, uh, we need to go through experimentation because we do not exactly know how people will react. This is very true. Uh, we do not, for instance, know whether the elderly will be confident with the new mean, okay? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but Estonia um, is uh, now uh, using uh, the electronic voting um, as, as a, an institutionalized normal instrument for voting at national political election. And they are thinking to use the same kind of uh, uh, ways to uh, to make people to express their opinion, also for uh, other forms of election at the local level, referenda, so on and so forth. It, it is also very important that we uh, save this multi-channel sort of uh, mode. No? So people who want to continue to express their vote through physical means uh, absolutely uh, need to be allowed to do it. Elderly people, uh, and, you know, but uh, 
and, and as far as the elderly, however, Ricardo, there is also another observation to be made, um, because there is a sort of paradox, because to the elderly, uh, it is even uh, more tiring times, especially for, for people who are more than, than 80 and are sort of physically impaired, it happened in a big way with, with, with my mom, and, to go to the pole, it uh, can be quite painful, no? To them, uh, paradoxically, uh, the convenience uh, to use uh, a uh, easy to be understood, uh, user-friendly interface to express uh, uh, her or his opinion uh, would be uh, even more convenient. Now, this is, we would need another uh, podcast for that, but it is very much a question of interfaces, no? So we uh, are still using, uh, in most of the times, uh, iPhones uh, with very small patterns and, uh, and instruments which are very much uh, conceived uh, thinking about uh, not even me and you, but, uh, you know, kids, basically, no, uh, underage, not really uh, young people. And therefore, elderly are, are, are excluded, not only uh, from, uh, from electronic voting, but, but from quite many essential public services which are uh, accessed increasingly through technological means. But uh, again, it is a question to, as far as electronic voting, uh, to um, consider the future. Yes. Huh? And, to, and to slowly or less slowly, adapting our democracy to a century, which, by the way, started 22 years ago. It's not <laughs> yesterday. And we cannot, I mean, it's, it is paradoxical, but we are still using the very same instruments for giving life to our democracy, which were invented more or less 80 years ago. I mean, this is in a completely different context. Where we, we, we barely had the television. Something for us to follow very closely. Uh, we're running out of time, and I want you to go a little bit more into the work you do and how can people access it to it. But before that, I have to ask you this, Frederico. Do you think that there will be a critical mass being from legislators or being from the voters then that we can move to this more open, more democratic more representative kind of voting on European Union? Or do you think that this is something that will still far from, from getting the light at the end of the tunnel? Yeah, well, uh, I think uh, um, we should insist very much on the uh, uh, idea of uh, giving uh, uh, an additional option to, to people. No, So, uh, I mean, if... Uh, uh, transnational constituency, uh, which are, by the way, a very natural way no, to, to, to consider uh, Europe, because with the decision that the European Parliament is, uh, is called to make are Europe-wide decision, okay? I, I think, but if we, uh, con we very much ask that thing as a, a democratic additional option, that European citizen or the European citizens who really feel the Europeans deserve, I mean, the, uh, the, the argument of democracy is rather irresistible. Mm -hmm. so again, people who continue to think that their citizenship is not just electoral constituency, is 
all the national or all the regional, they, are, they, they should absolutely be uh, allowed to continue to nurture that, that identity. However, if uh, you think that, uh, that your citizen, citizenship, which is uh, always uh, a mix uh, of different identities, you know, because Ricardo, you are Portuguese, uh, but you are probably also uh, European and from Lisbon, etc. No? So each of us, uh, naturally, not everybody, is a mix of different uh, plants, you know, because we yes. are uh, complex, let's say. So, um, but we should very much strongly ask democracy and the means to participate to democracy to be flexible for mm -hmm. two reasons. Number one, because we absolutely need to experiment the future, otherwise the democracy will become obsolete. And number two, we need to democratically allow people to express, to exercise their participation in more than one way. So that's, that's, that would be the value proposition that, uh, by the way, even Eurosceptical parties uh, may agree, because as uh, we, uh, we very much uh, try to, to describe in our paper, they may even have an advantage mm -hmm. to, to make this decision here in terms of the final allocation of, uh, of seats. No, mm -hmm. so because, uh, I mean, this uh, decision would allow um, parties to sort of uh, define their segment more precisely and to go for that, that segment. Or people that, you know, uh, think that they are more or less European, no? uh, mm -hmm. so to say. This is a fascinating conversation and we'll have to continue it. But from now... Apart from you being a visionary, you're also a prolific author, and you have some books that are really, uh, really interesting. I was looking at your CV, and I'm going to ask you to please direct our listeners to some of your work. Uh, one of them, for example, Democracy and Growth in the 21st Century. Uh, it's a very interesting one. You also have Innovation, Democracy and Efficiency. So tell us a little bit, how can people follow your work and how would you direct them to keep reading about how to improve democracy? Yes, uh, I would ask um, listeners to probably follow the think tank. That would be the, um, the, the, the most efficient way to do it. Uh, um, it, is, uh, it is called vision. In fact, uh, talking about visionary, uh, is uh, vision, And you can follow our, uh, our, our projects, our articles, our papers. We are um, having... A, Mm, two big conferences per year. One is uh, on the future of Europe in Siena. Uh, next one will be in 2023, mid-June. The other one is on climate change. It is uh, uh, the, the so-called Dolomite conference, the Dolomite area. And we just had that one uh, two days ago. And we will have uh, the next one uh, around mid-October 2023. Uh, it is, uh, the, 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 this one is before COP, the COPs. Now, now we just produced a manifesto uh, for COP27. As far as my uh, last book, uh, the title, you are right, is uh, uh, Democracy and Growth in the 21st Century. Very much uh, comparing that in that book uh, the performance of uh, China, Europe, and United States. Okay? So uh, our idea is that uh, um, if uh, uh, China 
And other countries are our adversaries, as uh, the Chinese general Sun Tzu used to say, if you want to, to how can I say, uh, beat or at least not lose with your adversary, you need to not your adversary. No, you need to really understand how does uh, your, uh, your, uh, your adversary uh, sort of function. And it is, uh, a, uh, again, as, as we mentioned before, um, a, a exploration, a study on what is the relationship between democracy and performance yes. uh, of different countries. Uh, and the relationship between democracy and performance is a complex, very interesting one. As we very much advocate in the, in the article that we described in the very uh, conversation, we are at the stage where either we increase democracy or we lose out. So mm -hmm. it is very important that we go towards the future with some uh, courage. You know, as you say. I'm now writing a new book and then we, uh, we, we sort of <laughs> finish with, with this reference. Uh, whose title uh, is uh, Internet of Beings, not Internet of Things, but Beings. Beings. And mm -hmm. it is about the convergence of Internet with uh, healthcare system and big data with uh, medical research. So it's mm. a completely different thing. But my very passion, my very big uh, research and professional interest is about how technologies are driving a biological mutation and it is about the absolute need that we have as human beings to really understand what is happening and trying to, how can I say, uh, tame uh, this monster that risks to overwhelm our society. No? Very good. I'm going to put all these links on the podcast show notes. We're going to be looking forward for that new book of yours, which sounds really, really interesting and, and really crucial. But for now, I'm going to ask you to please, uh, let's keep this conversation going. And also these uh, conferences that you're organizing, we'll be following it here on the podcast. I've been talking with Francesco Grillo. Francesco, this was a privilege. Thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you so much, Ricardo. I'm back. Just reminded that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. This podcast is produced by the European Liberal Forum, co-founded by the European Parliament and have the support of the social liberal movement Think Tank in Portugal and Liberty Foundation in Poland. The views expressed herein are those of the speakers alone and these views do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum.